Let us come before our God with prayer and adoration. Indeed, Lord God above, we are thankful again that we can meet this evening, that you watched over us, that we had safe travel to and from this afternoon to this evening. Our Lord God above, that you've given us protection and health and even wealth. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your continued blessings upon us. We pray, Lord, for our work situations, that we would, Lord, do what we can to work as unto you, Lord, to take our talents and opportunities, God, on our jobs and our home and our locations in life and vocations and wherever we may be called, God, to do well and to do it unto you, Lord, to do it, Lord, because we desire to follow your ways, because we are saved, because we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To that end, God, may we continue to take stock of the things that you've given us, to be wise, God, to be men who know the times and seasons which we find ourselves into adjust accordingly. Precious God, may we have such wisdom during this uh, difficult political season, difficult social season we find ourselves in. We pray also, God, for the kingdom of God, for the spiritual truths of your word to spread across this nation, to spread across this town, to spread across our little corner of the world. We ask, God, that you continue to be with your church and all those who call upon the name of Christ Jesus here in the Denver metro area, Lord the various ascendry pastors and Christians, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that they would follow your word, that they would follow your gospel and trust in Jesus Christ anew every morning. Help them, we pray. Watch over them and protect them. We pray, God, for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that she would continue to be faithful to you, Lord, and that she would repent of any sins that she has, both collectively and individually. Help her to do the right thing, Lord. Help our sister churches here in the Dakotas. the Presbyterian Dakotas, Lord, in the actual South and North Dakota, in Wyoming, Utah, and here in Colorado, God above, that those churches would be strengthened. They are small churches, Lord. May they not be discouraged, but persevere day by day. Give them the help that they need, we pray, through the mystery of your providence. And, Lord, may their pastors stand firm and preach the law and the gospel, both clearly and both with conviction, and also, Lord, with wisdom to know when to apply the smoothing balm of Gilead, as well as the stinging rod of discipline. We ask, God, that we would have such wisdom in our church as well, that you would be with us and help us to fight against our sins, to continue to be humble in your sight, Lord, thankful for the salvation we have, not of our own, but of you. We're thankful, God, to that end, for raising up such a man as Martin Luther, 500, three years ago, God above, and that he stood firm upon the whole word of God. We ask, Lord, that we would follow in his steps, that is, to the extent that we are able, by your spirit and strength, God, to stand firm upon your word, Lord Jesus. We cannot all be Luther in the sense that he is unique uh, historically in that, by your providence, but we can, Lord, stand firm, to believe, to stand against the lies of the world. Help us grow as a church, both numerically and spiritually. Help us as families to continue to grow. And as, with respect to sanctification, Lord above, we pray for more holiness more love for your word, more love for obedience, more love for one another. God, even if people don't feel like they have love from us, Lord, may we rise above feelings, Lord. We want to have good feelings to be sure, Lord, but feelings come and go. But the truth is there, and we show love, and we continue to show love towards one another. Be with us this evening, God. Guide my lips for the encouragement of the saints. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn to Acts. Chapter 27, Acts 27. 
verses 34 and 35. This is the longer section here at the end of the book of Acts where Luke is explaining to us in a fair amount of detail the journey, the last journey of Paul to Rome. He made an appeal. He used the judicial system. He mixed religion and politics, although not in the way you hear about in America, of course, but in the best way, that is for the defense of the gospel, for the good of the kingdom of God. He said, now is the time, so he appealed to Rome. And since he appealed, there was nothing else that could be done, and they sent him to Rome. This is by way of boat, and we know the famous storm that came upon them. And that's the section we are here uh, after uh, 14 days of no food and uh, distress and worry. So we begin here at verse 34. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. This is Paul speaking. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Let us pray. God above, we read here in these words, that Paul, although, as we know elsewhere, was given the truth, the vision, that they would not drown. Nevertheless, stood firm upon your providence and exercise what we should do, which is to preserve life, to eat, to drink when we can, Lord, to take the means, causes, and occasions, and even provocations to preserve life in accordance to the Sixth Commandment. We are called, God, and we see this example here. See the wonders of your providence in this chapter and the next chapter, God. And then the details of the text show us the details of your providence and control over all things and directing all things to your glory and the good of the saints and the good of your church. And this we see is the good of the saint Paul and those with him and the good of the church as it expand, expanded to Rome and to the four corners of the earth. We are called, like Paul, to use the means, the causes, and occasions to live a godly life. May this be an encouragement to us, especially, Lord, when there's a lot of confusion at times, and perhaps we've fallen into them, as I have in my own life. May we overcome these confusions and continue, Lord, to stand in faith by doing what we are called to do by your word and by common sense, the common sense of living in God's providence. In your name we pray. Amen. There is a certain way of responding to the difficulties of life that we find ourselves in. I have fallen into this mindset or way of speaking, and I suspect you have as well. It seems like the right answer to the hard questions of life, to the troubles and difficulties. After all, it is theologically accurate and devotionally comforting. At least it seems that way. It is the claim that everything is okay because God saves souls. What do I mean by that? Consider the following problems that we face as Christians living in the real world and the answer that sometimes is given to these problems. Problem, problem number one. We should seek a vaccine for a cure. I'll say cure. Avoid all controversy here. Seek a cure for COVID, flu, cancer, etc. And quickly. Let's not dally around. The answer given by some, a vaccine isn't our salvation. Okay. Second problem. 
We need to get more people to vote, or we need better politicians, better laws, before it's too late as a nation. The response you hear, and I've seen on memes on Twitter and Facebook, election and voting isn't our salvation. Okay. And here's a bonus answer you may have heard. God is our salvation, therefore we trust in God who is bigger than our circumstances. God is our salvation. Yes, that's true. We trust in Him. Yes, that's true. He's bigger than our circumstances. Yes, that's true. But how is that relevant to curing your mother's cancer? Have you ever thought about that? Or yours, for that matter. Can you see the mistake? The mistake is confusing the categories of this life with the saving of your life. Specifically your soul, because we're not promised health and wealth, are we? Not till Christ Jesus comes. We are given that promise. Should I correct myself? There is a promise. We're just not going to get it in this life. It's not a guarantee of health and wealth and prosperity. But we will have that in the cities and streets of gold and heaven. When we deal with sicknesses, a cancer taking the life of your spouse, for example, the fact that God saves souls and saves the soul of your spouse does not mean that they will not die of cancer nor that you should do anything to stop it. Nor does it mean that you should make no effort to find a cure. It's a non-sequitur, right? It doesn't make a connection. That's what that word means. It does not follow. The same is true for voting or anything else. There are real problems in life, your life, your neighborhood, our society... It does not mean that we should throw up our hands and say, well, I'm not going to vote because I'm not saved by voting. It's a confusion of category. Of course you're not saved. You don't go to heaven by voting. It's not like the Roman Catholic Church. You just pay people money and you get indulgences, right? Watch Luther's uh, movie about Luther, 1953 movie, which is, I think, the one most people have seen. And explaining to my daughter, she's, her eyes get bigger and bigger. But this is what they taught. They still teach something like this, although they probably modified it since Vatican II how wily they are. Nothing like that. Nothing of the kind. It's a confused way of dealing with life to give those kind of answers when that's not the question. The question is never, uh, can I get to heaven by voting the right person? Who, sa- who actually says that? I've never actually heard anybody actually say that. Or, you know, a vaccine or a cure or whatever the case may be. It's not the way God designed providence. The providence we live in have many difficulties and problems, and I preached on that. In my example, I mentioned COVID, and that's a concern, and I would like a cure for it. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Get it out of our hair, right? And I would like it sooner than later. Does wanting it sooner than later, does wanting a cure now and not later and working to that end necessarily make you ungodly and impatient? No. That doesn't follow. It doesn't mean we idolize the cure for COVID, does it? People talk that way as well. Oh, you're idolizing voting. Not, how does that follow? Can you read my heart? I mean, am I actually bowing down? That's a specific sin, actually. It's a pet peeve of mine. It's a specific sin. I, idolizing, that is, bowing down to an idol. Nobody's doing that. And I suspect no one's even replacing God with the idol of voting, at least not in Christian circles. I speak of amongst Christians, because Christians are going to give these answers. Unbelievers aren't going to really care about you know, vaccines and our salvation. It means nothing to them. That's the context in which I speak. 
So, in, so the response that sounds pious at first blush, right? Well, God is our Savior. He's bigger than our circumstances. And we're not saved by voting. We're not saved by working hard. We're not saved by, you know, any of this stuff that we're supposed to do in providence, ordinary providence, is irrelevant. utterly irrelevant to our circumstances that way. Nobody is saying that. The same is true for many things. As I said before, voting, the issue of getting better politicians is important and even needful. The sooner the better. It doesn't mean that we think election day is our salvation. It means we take the means and causes of providence seriously. It means God has given us an ordinary providence to accomplish ordinary things. And of course, in our nation, that involves voting often like protecting our family from wicked laws by voting against those laws. God being our Savior doesn't change those laws. It just simply doesn't. Making that answer, though that's going to fix it. How is that relevant to our text? Even though Paul was given an extraordinary revelation of salvation, that all those on board the ship would be saved, he still used ordinary means of providence, and I mentioned this before. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your salvation, since not a hair will fall from the hand from the head of any of you. Not a hair will fall from the head of any of any of you. You will survive. You will live. Nevertheless, God uses what? Means to accomplish purposes or ends. Means to ends. If they didn't eat, they would die. That's how providence works. I know it's difficult. It's a struggle for some of us. This is simply how it is. It's how God created this universe. Paul knew that. Paul didn't use the excuse, well, there's a prophecy, just do whatever you want, it's going to happen. He wasn't a fatalist. That's the technical term. That's what Muslims are, at least the Muslims that follow the formal teaching of Islam. They are fatalists. Ask the taxi drivers in the Middle East, right? You've heard those stories from Leonard. Drive like madmen. Why? Because auto wills. Whatever auto wills will come to pass. doesn't matter what I do. That God saves souls should be obvious. Yet, Paul insisted, he urged, that's the word, he urged them that they eat. Is Paul idolizing food? <laughs> no, of course not. Is Paul denying that God saves? Of course not. Is Paul denying that God is bigger than your circumstances? That's not actually helpful in that. It could be helpful if you feel like God has left you. That's true. And I've talked about that in Providence. That's part, one, of the, one of the effects of difficulties of life, pain and heartache, People leave you, your family abandons you or something, and you feel like God left you. That's true, in which case you need to be reminded God is bigger than your circumstances. You haven't lost your salvation. That is true. But with respect to the actual question, how, how do I handle you know, COVID? How do I handle cancer? How do I handle difficulties? How do I ha handle unemployment? You use providence. It's not helpful to say, well, God's bigger than your circumstances. Well, okay, I, I know that. I don't believe. My question isn't, does, did God leave me? Did God leave my soul? Am I going to go to hell? That wasn't my, my question. Is what do I do now? This is hard. I know it's hard. This is what I'm talking about. Paul did nothing of the kind. Paul was clear that he and others used the ordinary oham means of providence to accomplish important things, like the saving of the lives of Paul on Paul's boat. In verse 30, earlier on we read, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let it down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors, we're going to sneak off here, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. He didn't say, Well, God promised it, so you can do whatever you want. God's going to bounce off miracles left and right. Do whatever you want. 
and we're going to be saved. No, Paul says, follow the means. You leave the boat. I mean, just common sense, you leave the boat often. That's not a good thing in a storm. You probably want to stay on the boat as long as possible. The other way of explaining this confusion or misapplication, because it is a misapplication, if it's a different question, of the truth that God is our salvation, God is bigger than our circumstances and the like, is to remember that we live in providence. We live in the cause and effect, the moral cause and effect, the physical cause and effect as well, universe of God's design. We live a Oham life. Random miracles do not occur, nor are they promised to occur. We do not expect to lay around all at home all day and wait for money to show up on our doorsteps, do we? At least I don't think any of you do. What do you do instead? You have to go to bed on time. Get up early, get dressed, eat breakfast, brush your teeth, comb your hair, if you do that. Get in the car, warm it up, drive through rush hour to work at a company you probably wouldn't want to stay at for very long. We all have lives like this, and that is okay. It's as it should be insofar as it's a series of things that we have to do to accomplish things in God's plan known as providence in our life. God has not promised miracles to make life easy. We have to live in the cause and effect providence that God gives everyone. If you want food, you've got to work for it. And you know what? It's true for unbelievers and believers alike. Because we live in the same universe. What does it look like to live in ordinary Oham providence? I'll explain that in two points here to further illustrate Areas where we are tempted to bypass the ordinary means by claiming the extraordinary salvation God has given our lives. You see that? First point, living in society with providence or in God's providence. The Noahic covenant is a good reminder. Remember this promise? Or a reiteration of the implied promise of creation. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. Genesis 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The covenant reminds us that God directs all things according to his eternal plan. And that there are cause and effects. There is one thing that comes after another. Day turns into night. Nature runs its course. Spring to summer to fall to winter, as we are seeing here in Colorado. If this is true for seed time and harvest, for cold and heat and winter and summer, the most large impacting events of this world, it's true for all things in nature. That is in God's creation as well. We are part of God's creation, are we not? We live in this cause and effect universe that affects us. And that works because God designed it to work and keeps it working as well. It works for the believer as well as for the unbeliever. That's why many, many unbelievers can be more successful than many, many believers. How is that possible? In my experience, it's because 
many believers, I say many, maybe it's a minority of 40%, I don't know, not relevant, look at the world and figure out how it works. Uh, that is, many unbelievers, excuse me, look at the world and figure out how it works. And so they become billionaires and scientists and inventors. On the other hand, you're like, why aren't, why aren't there more Christian successful people? And sometimes it's a simple case because they're confused. I was raised this way. They want to quote a Bible text somehow to explain how to do complex economics or run a business by quoting the Bible. I've seen that a number of times. The Bible tells us what to believe concerning God and how to save our souls and how to live as a Christian. It does not tell us how to run a business as such, how to be a carpenter. It's not an engineering manual. How to be an electrician. It doesn't tell you where to live. It doesn't tell you what the best social policy is for any given difficulty or situation in life, more often than not. For that, we live in God's providence or common sense. The Bible gives us the better revelation of the moral law written on our hearts, right? Natural revelation, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, certainly clearer, that's true. But again, where you live, how long should you be at your job? Should you put your money into your company or put it, invest it elsewhere? The Bible doesn't tell you that. It says use your wisdom, look at cause and effect in the universe, count the cost, weigh the options. We do that a lot more than you realize, don't we? I call it living by counting the cost. That's how you live in God's providence. You count the cost. You weigh the options. We use this more often than we realize. It's practical means directed by godly goals. Is the long and short of it. Jesus explained it this way in Luke. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying, going to follow me? This is what it's going to cost you. Not that you have to make a point of casting out your family members, but you have to be committed such that if your family rejects you and rejects Christ, you still follow Christ and not your family. That's what he's talking about. He's saying you count the cost. Four, verse 28, right after this. He's going to expound and unpack this spiritual truth that you follow Jesus, you carry your cross, you're committed to following him no matter what, like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. Even if my family turns against me. And I'm going to explain this in two ways. Christ explains this principle in two ways. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Count the cost. Hear that? Christ is saying, going to follow me. What? You better count the cost. Now I ask you to think about if counting the cost is only a thing that Christians are supposed to do or is this a general proposition? And count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, enough money to finish, enough resources, enough time, enough talent, enough workers to finish the tower. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
What a fool. Who doesn't count the cost? Who doesn't weigh and find out if it's really worth the effort? Can I pull it off? Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends delegation and asks conditions of peace. Count the cost. Christ is using ordinary everyday life. What do you call that? Providence. Ordinary, boring, oh-hum providence. And saying, what do you do in that domain of life? You count the cost. You weigh your options. You figure out what's the most practical, useful way to accomplish to the purpose and my ends and goals in life. That's what you do. We all do that, brothers and sisters. We all do that. Christ says, what you do in everyday life, you ought to do when you follow me. Count the cost. It only makes sense if it is true, and it is true, that the way you live in God's providence is by counting the cost, weighing the options, seeing what is the best approach that works to accomplish the ends at hand. The end may be eating for the day, which itself becomes a means for living for tomorrow, that you can be around to support and supply your family. Right? Means becomes ends to greater goals and greater ends in life, the greatest of which is... Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We count the cost of the means we are using to achieve good goals or principled ends. The good ends are the principles that we are called to do. Uh, they are as hum and boring as living and eating and preserving life and sleeping as it is to provide for your family or even to protect your community. These are a fulfillment of what? The sixth commandment, maybe the seventh and eighth. Other commandments. So I say holy and godly. I don't mean somehow you have to have an explicit Bible text as such, uh, but that they are, of course, sanctified by God because we are born again. They can be many of the same goals unbelievers have. They, too, have to eat to live. They, too, have to work to support their family. And these are uh, good as far as it goes, of course, but as unbelievers, they don't do it for the glory of God. We are, therefore, called to follow a principled living, but through practical means. The means that God has given us in his providence. What I mean by means is what? Means, causes, occasions, provocations, appearances thereunto. Things that aren't always spelled out, often aren't spelled out in the Bible. For example, how to provide for our family is a range of options. Determined by your circumstances, your ability, and your opportunity. We pick the most practical route to achieve the goal of providing for our family, and we do it by avoiding that which is forbidden. You're not supposed to sell your body to provide for your family. That's clear. But what's not clear is what can I do besides that. There's many other things you can do besides that, other different jobs and at different timetables in different parts of the country. You weigh the options, and you find out what works to achieve what is important in your life. You already do this, as I said. So don't let people undermine your godly effort to find practical means to accomplish good ends, like supporting your family or protecting your community, protecting your church, with common sense measures. Don't go back 
if you've had this temptation, and just talk about, well, God's bigger your circumstances. Well, that's great, but how is this actually going to help me protect my family? Other than, again, peace of mind, that's true, but it's not going to give you an answer of what specifically should I do right now to get the job, to get the food, to get the protection, to get whatever needs to be done at that time. What do you do? You look at your options and you decide what's the best. You weigh your options. You find out what's the best. None of these violates that which is forbidden. Should never be done, right? One of God's commandments. But what comes to positive ways of fulfilling is all kinds of ways. Living in the church with God's providence. Of course, we have supernatural origins of the church through Jesus Christ, the apostles and prophets and miracles to establish the New Testament church and the formation of the Bible. To, to lay down the unique foundation of the New Testament era, as we read in Ephesians 2, right? Or the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. That is to be laid once. It is very precise and measured. It sets the boundaries of what the building itself will go, where it's, what, what direction is it going to go, the way up above the foundation, never further than that. But how you put a lot of it together, not just the foundation of the church as a formal organization, but the foundation of the church as an organic organization, your life. Right? How you live, what you do, all the details of that house and that building look different. It's a little different for everyone's house, isn't it? Your house, my house, my family, your family, how you accomplish certain things. You read devotions in the morning, you read them at night. Do you even read devotions? Do you read a Bible first instead? You do both. I don't know. You've got all kinds of options. Pick one that works for a godly end. That's living in His providence as a church. Of course, we have a special providence, which I preached on, that God directs all things for His glory, and especially for the good of the church. But that doesn't mean that as a church we should do irrational things. We are called to be tough-minded about the difficulties of life, as well as practical and commonsensical in church matters not dictated by the Word of God, which again are a lot of things. And we trust God, but through His providence, to if need be, draw a straight line with the crooked stick of some of our perhaps bad decisions, as only he can. That's a special providence. That's his domain, not ours. We should still trust in him to be sure. In particular, let me give you an example as a church, not our church, but <clears throat> four churches in the church life here, the formal church life, right, the church organized, as I call it, choosing a mission field. Uh, this had come up, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. It was a debate on foreign missions. Uh, I guess it was 20 years ago. One side wanted to keep the foreign mission field open and the monies available and the resources flowing to it. The other side did not. They argued there was little fruit and better opportunities elsewhere. Whose side was right? The first party argued that the Great Commission demanded that we have mission works, and so we must keep this open. That is very much like saying God is bigger than our circumstances, ergo what? I don't know, ergo nothing. It's non sequitur. It doesn't follow just because the commission, the Great Commission says you're supposed to preach to the world that it has to be exactly this mission field right now. Where does that follow? It's nowhere in the Bible. It's applying it. But why is his application better or that group's application better than the other group? Because he quoted the Bible verse and it sounds really holy? You catch that? You guys following me? I feel like I, I want a response because I'm not sure if I'm making my point clear sometimes. It's a different way of thinking. And I want to us avoid this pious-sounding but misconstrued way of doing things. 
So how do you answer that question in the foreign field, foreign mission field? How do you decide if you should shut it down or not? What do you do? I'm arguing from the Bible, from Paul, from Christ, Christ's words himself, and from Paul's actions, if you look at the number of things he did in Acts, you do it by counting the cost, by looking at your options. And it is a valid question to ask, is the money doing anything? Is anything happening here? Or is it happening elsewhere? It's commonsensical. It's, some people say, hard-headed, whatever. But it's real. It deals with life. That's how God designed things. I wish we had the money and resources to be missionaries everywhere. We just simply don't. So we have to make a decision. How do you make a decision? By quoting Bible verses? You can't. You just simply can't. In which case, you would never shut down a mission field. Ever, 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 because I quoted the Bible verse that says, Thou shalt. But what about the thou shalt again? That which is commanded is always our duty, but every duty, particular duty, is not to be done at all times. You can't eat all the time. You can't sleep all the time. You can't work all the time. You have to balance what? The positive commands. And that's true with the Great Commission. I'm sorry, it's just simply the way God designed the universe. But it's the highest calling of the church. It is, but God has limited that calling by His providence. It's His decision, isn't it? We just simply don't have enough resources to go all over the world. So we find ourselves, in many ways, no different than the world. I don't mean that as morally. I just mean in terms of how you make a decision. What does the rest of the world do? They just say, we don't have the resources, or the resources we have are being squandered here. We can see it. We have metrics showing there's no feed, no growth here. Nothing's happening. But it seems to work better over here. So let's go over here. That's not ungodly. I would argue that is godly. Because God has put us in providence. We just have to do what Paul does, which is you've got to eat, you've got to drink. If you're going to survive, if you want to survive this wreckage, we've got to stay together and not separate. And just use the means of providence. We have to do this. This is how God has designed it. Churches have to count the cost of their money and time, not just foreign mission fields, all kinds of things. Is it bearing fruit? Will it bear fruit? See, part of this is the future oriented, right? We don't know enough. We have to kind of balance the options. And often the way we balance the things is by what we know from the past. Are the odds that it will bear fruit? Are we aiming for the moon? Heard that. I haven't said that in a while, right? Are we aiming for the moon? We should not be aiming for the moon as churches, brothers and sisters. It's just naive. It's contrary to God's providence. There is none of this field of dreams theology. If you build it, they will come. There's truth to that with respect to American megachurches. They're not coming for the building as such. They're coming because a lot of money is thrown into this stuff. And he's a very big and popular guy, etc., etc. That's just, again, a very commonsensical way how things are done. It's not the right way, but that's how it is. We're not called to have that field of dreams approach to life, but a level-headed, commonsensical way of living as Christians, even as churches. Churches have to slash budgets. I'm sorry. That, that happens. But, but, but we've got to do godly things. But we haven't, and it's not working out. But, but, you quote a Bible verse. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, you can quote a Bible verse. If it's not relevant to that time and that circumstance, it's not like we're saying we're against you know, preaching or missions, just simply we don't have the funds. We have to argue over the details. And so we have a vote. I don't get the vote. That's great. You guys can vote for me. And I'll say, whatever you guys do, go for it. And we have, as mature adults, a discussion on the means, causes, provocations thereunto to best accomplish what a church is supposed to accomplish, right? 
We live a ho-hum providential life, brothers and sisters, and that's how God has designed it. Paul does it. We see it over and over again in the book of Acts. He flees persecution. Remember that. It's not wrong as such. This means we should avoid wishful thinking and have a common-sense approach to issues not directly answered by God's Word. We must make practical decisions with practical means towards a godly goal directed by God's law. One last example reminds me of this fact um, in outreach. So local missions, you can call it. A friend of mine told me, you know, the odds of handing out flyers and getting a response are about one in a thousand. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And we handed out about 2,000 flyers, and I think we got about two responses. He was very wise. May the Lord continue to direct us by his providence and word to live a life by his strength and grace that looks to Jesus to be sure that he is greater than our circumstances, brothers and sisters, and you will struggle sometimes to know exactly what you should do. And if you have to do something, sometimes you do. You can't not do something, right? Then you do it always in faith, knowing that God can draw a straight line with a crooked decision. But make a decision, we must. We must do it with common sense, living in God's providence. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, God above, help us, we pray, to live, thus, to live this way. It is hard because in many ways there's a sentimentalism in evangelical and even reformed churches, Lord, for many, many decades now, of just quoting a Bible verse and somehow that's going to fix everything. Uh, Lord, it's dealing with theology often, and, and the theology of the soul especially, and the comfort of our conscience. And there's much direction with respect to thou shalt not murder. Exactly, for example, God, as you know, how we should preserve life. On the other end, we can disagree societally at times as Christians even, what specific laws. And so, Lord, may we continue to have wisdom in this area, especially again during this time and season in which we find ourselves, Lord. May we rest in your promise. Your special providence, your providence in general, God, that you've designed for us. Oh, hum, providential life, Lord. 